Good morning. Today we're reading from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Uh, how was your week? How was your week? Good, good. Actually, what I wanted you to do is to ask the person next to you how their week was, okay? Uh, ask them how their week was. It's such a um, it's a, such a common social sort of interaction, isn't it? How was your week? Uh, one of the most common questions we ever ask. And when I ask that question, and when I'm asked it, the most common question to answer to that question is really busy. You know, I have been flat out, and uh, and I think that that is is just human nature. It's just the nature of things in our culture. Uh, even when I talk to retirees. They say, you know, now I'm retired, I'm busier than ever before, right? It's not as if uh, life has slowed down at all. The busyness of life just seems to be part of the reality. And a big part of our busyness in life actually is work, whether that work be paid employment or other activities we give ourselves to day by day. It's estimated that the average Australian will work over 100,000 hours of paid employment throughout their life. That one activity is second only to the top activity that consumes hours, which is sleeping. Right? Sleep is first, 
and then work is the second most consuming activity in our lives. So work. Uh, how should we think about work? It's just really hard to get the balance right, isn't it? Uh, some people live to work and some people work to live. Uh, I had a friend when I was about 20 years old. He was 10 years older than me. We did gymnastics together. And he said, this, his name is Dave, he said, my ambition is li- in life is to retire by the time I am 40 years old. Okay, He wanted to earn enough money so he could retire at that age. Now, Dave didn't get to do that at 40. He was actually 42 by the time he retired. He was the first person in the state public service uh, to go down to a four-day working week uh, on a permanent basis. He was a real trendsetter uh, from that point of view. But Dave made a whole lot of choices in life. Uh, He decided he couldn't possibly get married because if he got married, he wouldn't be able to afford to retire by the time he was 42. Okay, And uh, and so he didn't. He he lived with various women, but he never actually... uh, never actually married anyone. Some people work in order to live, uh, but other people live in order to work. Work is much more dominant in terms of the way they think about who they are and how they shape their sense of self-understanding and self-worth. And then you have people who, uh, like we do have a number of people here, for example, who are retired. And you know there's sort of this love-hate relationship with work once you've retired. Uh, you, you might have looked forward to that day of retirement and yet there can be a sense of emptiness and what is life all about now that I'm not in that sort of task day by day. Or I talk to uh, people who are stay-at-home mums or dads and they can ask the question of their significance because they're no longer working and they think if, if they work, they'll actually feel better about themselves. And There can be all sorts of complexities about who we are and how we're shaped that come about in relation to work. When we turn to the Bible, these opening chapters of the Bible, what we see is a God who works and a God who rests. It's a funny idea, isn't it? The whole idea of God, God resting. You know, how could the incomprehensible, all-powerful, all-knowing, never-gets-tired God rest? You know, what's going on with that? We'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. But as we look at these early verses in the Bible, what I hope you'll see actually is the thing that defines who we are as people is not so much our work, but the fact that we are made to rest. Rest tells you much more about who you are as a person and your purpose in life than work does. Okay, we'll look at that together. Okay, let's uh, get into Genesis chapter 1. What we've seen is that uh, uh, so far... As we looked at it, the God of the Bible, the God, the only God, he is the one who has systematically constructed the universe and he's done it with order. He's done it with a great sense of beauty and grace and he is the God who sustains everything he has made. Uh, last week we saw that we have been made in the image of God. Uh, we looked at verse 27 of chapter 1. Humanity is made in his image. Male and female, he created them. Uh, we know that there's a task associated with being made in the image of God. Back in verse 26, God says, Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. In verse 28, uh, the instruction is to subdue the world and to rule over it. Uh, that's reinforced when you get further on into chapter 2, into verse 15. Uh, man is placed in the garden to work it and to take care of it. 
God entrusts to us the task of caring for the world that he has made. He's made us to work. But I want to say it, didn't, it actually didn't need to be that way. God could have done it very, very <laughs> differently. He could have created a world that was totally self-propagating, you know, so that we didn't have to work at all. It just sort of looked after itself. And all we had to do was you know, watch Netflix and uh, play chess and go to hipster cafes like Stephen and, uh, you know, drink coffee and have on toast. You know, like we could have just spent our whole lives going to the beach and surfing. You know, God could have actually made it that way, but he doesn't. What we discover is that he has made us to be workers. He gives us responsibility and accountability. We're we're like tenants in this world who... uh, are entrusted by God with the role of taking care of all that he's made. Delegated responsibility and authority. Now that that is such an important thing to bear in mind, especially when it comes to this issue of work. Because it doesn't matter who you work for. It doesn't matter whether you're self-employed. It doesn't matter whether you're a homemaker. You always have a boss. And that boss is the one who has made you and made you for accountability to himself. And therefore, no matter what you do, you're always serving him. When we get to Genesis chapter 3, which we're not touching on this series, but it's worthwhile just focusing on for a moment. What we see there is what's commonly called the fall. That is, uh, the turning of humanity's back on God. And it affects absolutely everything in creation including the nature of work and what we give ourselves to in this world. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 portrays uh, the picture of people saying to God, I don't want you to be the boss, right? I want to be the boss of me and I want to take control of my own life independently from you. Now that rejection of God just throws everything into chaos because we're not designed to be God in this world. In chapter 3, you see the way in which that's worked out. Verse 17, God says to Adam there, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles. Work becomes tough, uh, frustrating. There are burdens attached to it. No matter how much you like your work, there's always an inherent frustration that comes with it or problems that emerge because of it. And, and you see it even just in the um, tending your garden at home. Like you might love growing flowers and bushes and herbs and things like that. But the question is always, why do the weeds grow twice as fast as the flowers? You know? And uh, there's the nature of living in a fallen world. What's interesting when it comes to this question of work is that as the Bible unfolds, you don't get an enormous amount of teaching on the motivations for jobs, careers. Um, When you get to the New Testament, there are a few framework things that are outlined for us about why we should work. If you go to a place like 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, we're told that there's a necessity for work in order to live, in order to eat. Uh, If you go to a place like 1 Timothy chapter 5, there's an instruction there about people working in order to provide for their family, people who depend upon them. If you go to Ephesians 4, verse 28, here the idea is that we should 
work in order to be able to be generous towards other people around us, not just our family, um, the ability to do that. You go to Colossians 3 or Ephesians chapter 6, and there people are instructed to work to display the character of God. That is, in your work, you should be uh, diligent, uh, have integrity, um, be faithful in the tasks that you're, you're given to do. What's interesting is that the Bible doesn't really address many of the 21st century questions that I find 21st century Christians are often asking. Right? Questions like this. What work should I choose? It's not a biblical question, actually, when it comes down to it. Um, Christians sometimes Christianise that question, what work does God want me to do? And it's almost as if God doesn't care and therefore doesn't answer. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Or questions like, should I aspire to be the best at my job I can possibly be for the Lord? Um, I'll come back to that in a little while. Uh, Should I look for a job that pays more money? Or should I get paid work even though I don't need the money to work, uh, to live? You know, should I take that sort of step? Should I think about what job will give me the most sense of personal fulfilment? Uh, how much enjoyment should I expect to get out of my work? They, they're the 21st century questions, but friends, they're definitely not the biblical questions. And often I think we go searching for those and read into the Bible what we'd like to get out of them. Work. How should we think about our work? I'll come back to some of the applicational questions in a moment. I want to turn the, our attention to the question of why God rests. We see man, mankind created in the image of God to work. That's clear at the, in the, second, the last part of Genesis chapter 1. But then when you get to the start of chapter 2, you enter into the seventh day, and it's all about God resting and the implications of rest. It's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, on the sixth day, what we saw last week was that humanity and the creation of people is at the very apex of God's created effort. But this first section of the Bible up until the end of chapter 2, verse 3, it's very clear that the apex of this creation week is actually not humanity. That happens on the sixth day, but then we come to the seventh day. And you know that seven in the Bible expresses the sense of wholeness or completeness. And here we are, day seven. And we also see a change of pattern here just to stress the fact that what's happening on this day is important. Do you know how the, um, all the way through chapter one, you have this formula uh, that comes through at the end of each day. You go to chapter one, verse five. There was evening, there was morning the first day. There was evening, there was morning, verse 8, the second day. There was evening, there was morning, verse 13, the third day. And then you come to the end of the seventh day. There is no end to the seventh day. No end to the, how long does this day go for? Well, as far as I can tell, it's still going. Um, that is, there is no evening, there is no morning, there is no seventh day at the end of it. And that open-ended uh, finish to this day is to underline the very thing that is happening on the day. So here's the question. Why does God rest on the seventh day? When you read that, don't you feel a sense of anticlimax? You know, 
like we've created the whole universe and now I'm just going to lie on my banana lounge and take it easy, you know. So it almost communicates that. And it raises a whole lot of questions. Uh, ones I raised before. I mean, God doesn't really need to rest, does he? So why does he rest at this point? You know, is he tired and just needs a rostered day off? You know, um, is he bored? You know, you can only create so much universe without it getting a bit tiresome. Uh, does he need a break, you know, to stimulate his divine creative juices? And of course, even as I say those things, you know they're all stupid. Right? That's a silly way to think. But why does God rest? Now let me say, God is not doing nothing on the seventh day. Excuse the double negative. But he's actually not just having a complete break. And you pick that up as you look at verse 3. What we're told there in chapter 2, verse 3, is he is resting from all his work in creation. That is, it is completed and done at that point. So he's resting from that creative activity. And so what he's doing at this point is not doing nothing, but turning his attention to actually sustaining everything he has made. He's still very active. Uh, It was Jesus, I think, in John chapter 5, verse 17, where he says, my father is still working and I am working. And that was actually in relation to a, a Sabbath controversy. God never stops working, but he stops his work in creation at this point. But I want you also to notice in chapter 2, verse 3, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Blessed the seventh day and made it holy. He set apart this day as important. So what is the significance of the Sabbath day? This seventh day. Over the years, I think the main emphasis that followers of the Lord Jesus have had is a debate about how much work it's appropriate to do on the seventh day and not actually working on the seventh day, having a break from your labour and activities. Can I say that in terms of, as you read through the Bible, that's not the emphasis on the Sabbath and it's not the intention that God had for it. I'm not saying that there isn't an importance to resting uh, or that it's not appropriate to do so, but it's much more comprehensive than that. What I'm going to do is just take you through a really brief thumbnail sketch of some of the features of this Sabbath uh, in the Bible so I can see a slightly bigger picture. When you go to Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, one of the Ten Commandments is about keeping the Sabbath. And in that verse, it talks about no one shall work on the Sabbath. And in fact, as you read through the book of Exodus and uh, following, what you discover is that if an Israelite worked on the Sabbath, uh, they laboured on the Sabbath, they could be executed, right? So it's pretty important to take the day off. When you get to Exodus 23, um, from verse 10 following, what we're told is about the the Sabbath year. Every seventh year was a year when the Israelites were not to sow any crops. And that meant that the the poor in the land could actually glean off the um, the farms. Um, The animals could have access to that grain. It It was a year off in that sense. Now, how many, anyone here ever been a farmer? 
Yeah, okay. Now, what do you think about the idea of just having a year off from, you know, working on the farm and sowing crops and stuff like that? How would that make you feel as a farmer? Unproductive. Unproductive, yeah. I imagine it would make you feel a bit nervous too. Like, how will I survive? That sort of thing. The whole of Israel stopped. Tools down. How are they going to survive? I suspect they, the whole thing was they knew they had to depend on God to provide for them. Uh, the whole, every, every 49th year, Leviticus 25, there was a year of jubilee every seven times seven years. At that point, all the land that you'd acquired over that 49 years from other people got returned to them. It was sort of a, a, a reverting back so everyone got their parcel of land. It was a levelling off. It told you not to make your God this world and the acquisition of it because it would all be sorted out in due course. You see, the Sabbath was primarily not a ban on work. It was a time to remember the relationship they had with the God who created them and the God who redeemed them. The God who made the heavens and the earth was their God and you could rely on him to care for you and actually to save you. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15 there are instructions from Moses to God's people about how they should operate when they went into the promised land. And in chapter 5, verse 15, it talks about the Sabbath day and it connects it to salvation. Listen to how this is expressed. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore... The Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. See, they want to stop on that day to remember they had a saving God and to celebrate the salvation they had in him. See, the Sabbath idea in the Bible is is about refreshment, but so much more. It's to remember the goodness of God, his blessings, his care, and to look forward to the future that he actually guarantees for his people. In that sense, I reckon um, the Sabbath is a bit like when people celebrate their wedding anniversary. Uh, That is, Sue and I, we're coming up to our 40th wedding anniversary in February next year, right? We will stop and we will celebrate on that day or close by, and what we will do is we will look back on 40 years and think how wonderfully kind God has been to us. And we'll reflect on the blessings we have in the very present and the stage of life and extended family. And we will look to the future knowing that our lives are totally secure in the hands of this living God. And can I say Sabbath is like that? It's having that perspective that your life is in the hands of the living God and to be reminded about that. What I want to do for just a few moments is to try and draw some of those threads together and talk about the impact of what we learn here in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 about the nature of work and the importance of remembering rest as God defines it. All right, So that's what we're going to do for a few moments. Firstly, let me talk about the motivations for working as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In our society today, so much of our self-image revolves around the nature of the work that we do or the work we don't do. Um, At social gatherings, one of the first questions you ask people you don't know is, what do you do? What do you do? You know? Now, it's just friendly. I mean, you've got to think of something to say, and that's a safe sort of thing generally. Sometimes it's not. But, you know, um, what do you do? Can I say what job you do or your lack of a job does not determine your worth as a person? has absolutely nothing to do with it at all from God's perspective. God does not value a high court judge any more than an unemployed used car salesman. God does not. And therefore, nor should we. We do not have any regard for people based on that sort of point. We do not think that the value of a person is tied up with how much money they earn. Uh, Say you're in a low-paying job or you're not paid at all because you're unemployed or you're retired or you're a volunteer. Uh, Does that affect who you are as a person? If you're a homemaker... Are you of any lesser value in the eyes of God? No, you're not. Uh, It makes absolutely no difference at all. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 7, we're told we're to work as if serving the Lord, no matter what you do. Money is there to live, it's to provide for, it's to be generous with. Money is not for identity, it is not for security. It's interesting when when we um, employ staff in the Trinity Network, one of the things I constantly say is we are paying you money not on the basis of your value. We are giving you money so you don't have to work. Yeah, so so you can get on with life and ministry without concern. And that's that's the way we need to think about our lives before God. Should we look for fulfilment or satisfaction in our jobs? Now, we are made to work. We see that from Genesis chapter 1. And therefore, I take it that your work will give you a certain amount of fulfilment and that that's appropriate. And you you know that often when you undertake a task, you get satisfaction from doing it. I am one of the world's worst handy people, right? I confess that, Sue can reinforce that, my kids will testify to it because I've passed on the same level of skill to them that I have, right? We have a uniform uselessness as a family in that respect, right? But let me say, when I do something handyman and I actually accomplish it, I feel really good, you know? Like, our vacuum cleaner broke, right? That meant replacing a piece on this head of this vacuum cleaner that and I thought, this will be straightforward. You know, my son ordered the part in, I pulled it apart, and then worked out that this vacuum head actually had electrical components, and I had to rewire the whole thing. And it, I couldn't even work out where the screws came out. You know, like I was straight, but I, I pressed on, I pressed on, I pressed on, I replaced it all, I connected the wires again to this new part, and then I thought, there's no way it's going to work when I hook it back to the vacuum cleaner, the electrical, but it did. You know, it actually worked, right? Now, that, I fixed that yesterday. It's still sitting in the middle of our lounge room, this vacuum cleaner, and I expect it will stay there for a month, right? Because I want everyone who comes in to hear the story of my victory over the vacuum cleaner, you know? Now, 
you may think I'm, I've derived too much satisfaction from this task, but that's because you don't appreciate how useless I am when it comes to these sort of... See, there, there should be a sense of, you know, fulfilment from your work. But can I say not in an ultimate sense? It's good to enjoy your work, and I think if you're able to enjoy your work, it gives you energy for other things. But if work becomes your primary vehicle for enjoyment and sense of completion in life, then you've got it wrong. Because you are so much more than your job. You've been made in the image of God to work, but you are made in the image of God. You get your sense of value and purpose from him, not from vacuum cleaners. <laughs> How stupid is that? I am stupid at that point. But, you know, it is that sense of getting perspective right when it comes to those, those sort of activities. Fulfillment, it's a good thing. Another question I think that Christians often ask is this one. As a Christian, should I be the best at my job I can possibly be in order to honour God? The best at my job I can possibly be in order to honour God. Just, I want you to lock away an answer to that question in your head. I'm not going to get you to say it to anyone. Should I be the best at my job I can possibly be to honour God? Now, the simple answer to that question is no. You should not be the best at your job you can possibly be to honour God. The Bible doesn't require that. And I can't see how you can possibly do that without, without making your work an idol. Let me explain it. Um, it. I think about my life and I have multiple responsibilities. Uh, I am employed in a church, I should do that. I am a husband to a wife who's been unwell for the last 12 months. I am a father to children. I'm a grandfather to grandchildren. I have a series of other relationships and responsibilities. Uh, there's a uh, a lawn in my yard that needs mowing and gets mowed about half as often as it should. You know, like I, I think about all the things in life, and life is complicated, right? See, I'm not required to be the best at my work I can possibly be, because if I make that my goal, I'll have to neglect almost everything else in my life to achieve that level of excellence in my work. I take it what God asks us to do is to be faithful to him in the range of relationships that we have in life and responsibilities and to honour him by the way in which we juggle those and at times give priority to some over others because it's appropriate to do it. Sometimes I, I hear um, the motto of Christian schools, excellence for Jesus. There's an element of truth in that but actually I think it can make academic excellence and an idol and a priority that we actually don't want for our children or to embed in terms of the way we operate in life. Now, um, excellence isn't best, but you understand what I'm saying. We get into that sort of space where it becomes a little more complicated. Faithfulness is what God asks for. And then the other thing I want you to remember about your jobs is that they don't last. Um, I worked as a lawyer for a couple of years I drew lots of wills and other documents when I get to heaven 
I do not think Jesus will pull out one of my files and say, you are such a great will drafter, Paul, you know, and welcome into the kingdom. I get the feeling like the will, the document, won't have any significance at all in eternity. My faithfulness and the way I treated people and went about my job might endure in some sense, but not the work itself. It won't. I take it there won't be any lawyers in heaven or accountants or doctors or... I'm not saying that you can't get saved if you're one of those professions, understand me. But what I'm saying is the usefulness of that task in heaven will not be there anymore. And we need to recognise that. But, But friends, can I say there is a work that will endure to heaven? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. It says, Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour for the Lord is not in vain. That is, it will last, is the point being made in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So what's the labour that lasts? It's not lawyering or doctoring or accounting or garbage collecting or... Not that. Actually, when you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it's the work of promoting the Lord Jesus in this world because that actually endures for all eternity. Now, I'm not saying uh, you should give up your job and everyone do what I'm doing. Um, otherwise, if you did that, no one would pay me. That would be a real problem. You know? um, I'm only joking. But it, that is, uh, what we are called to do, though, is in our jobs, think about how we bring glory to God in our jobs, by the way we work and relate with integrity and grace and faithfulness and honesty, uh, treating everyone around us well and taking the opportunity where we have it to actually speak about the Lord Jesus to others. Work. Now, we could talk a lot more about work, but let me turn our attention just, just for the last few moments to the question of rest. Rest as I said before, it tells you a lot more about your meaning in life than work does. Secular studies show the importance of getting the right balance on resting and working in order to uh, perform well. When daylight saving is introduced and we all lose an hour's sleep, uh, studies have been done to show that the incidence of car accidents rockets up in the week following daylight saving introduction. It's just an indication that we don't perform well when you strip, strip time out of our sleep patterns. And most of you know that reality. You know, when I get tired, right, I get grumpy. Um, you know, and therefore, I don't actually help anyone. and I'm not, not faithful. You know, I'm responsible for my grumpiness, but you know, we tend to operate that way. But at the end of the day, the biblical idea of rest is much, much more than taking time out each week. Here at the start of Genesis chapter 2, what God is doing is he he invites humanity to enjoy resting with him. With him. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? You see, it's relational. It's remembering who God is and why he should be central in all of life. I like the Westminster Confession of the Presbyterian Church It says our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Enjoy him forever. That's the idea of rest. Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 verse 28, he says, 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus is not saying, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you 12 hours sleep. He's not saying that. He's saying, I will give you that restored relationship with the one who made you for relationship with himself. I will introduce you to the lover of your soul because rest is the ability to enjoy God and to enjoy him forever. And Jesus, he is the one who makes it possible. See, here we are at the start of the Bible and it makes it so clear that the point of life is defined by your relationship with God. And can I say, if you don't have a relationship with God, then you've actually missed the key point to life. And there'll be some here who you know you don't have a relationship with God right now. And you have missed the central purpose for your existence, if that is the case. Now, you will substitute other things in, inevitably, because you pull God out of the picture, you've got to replace him with something. So for most Australians, the, things, the thing that actually replaces God, if they're not believers, is relationships. Uh, surveys are done of Australians about the most important thing in their lives. And they talk about family. That's, that's almost the only answer that, that Australians give that goes into double digits you know, percentage-wise. And it's something like 56% of Australians say the most important thing in life is their family. Now, family is important. Christians hold of that. But they hold that family is important because of their relationship with God. But you've got it. It'll be work, it'll be family, it'll be leisure, it'll be travel, it'll be lots of people have lots of different things. But at the end of the day, nothing can substitute for the living God because nothing in creation is meant to fulfil the gap of the creator in your existence. What's the goal of life? Well, the main goal of life, friends, is to keep remembering the importance of resting. Sure, your work, but actually the main purpose for your life is to rest. That is, to enjoy God and to enjoy him forever. That's our purpose. Can I pray for us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a gracious Heavenly Father. You've, you've made us, you've made the whole world, you've made us, you've made us for a relationship with yourself, you've given us clarity on our role and responsibility in the created order. Now, Father, we know that uh, uh, we're constantly distracted by the shiny objects around us. Uh, we're distracted by the, the things that people around us seek after, the value systems that they, they impose on our society in different ways. And yet, Father, we pray that we will long for the things that endure forever and that are rich. And we know that those are all tied up with knowing you and knowing the mercy and grace you've shown us in the Lord Jesus Christ, forgiveness, so that we have the promise of rest in this world, but the hope of rest with you for all eternity. 
because we know, Father, there remains a rest for your people. Therefore, Father, we pray uh, that you'll help us get our, our work, our activities in right order. But we know that only happens when we have you placed centrally in our thinking, in our hearts and in our aspirations. So, Father, keep shaping us, keep uh, moulding us, keep adjusting our thinking and behaviours so that they line up with yours. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.